Hello and welcome to Historical Hysteria. Today we are jumping right in with a quick listicle on the five most unkillable characters of World War II. So let's get started with number five, Charles de Gaulle. When talking unkillable leaders, the list is usually topped by Fidel Castro. After all, Castro dodged a world record 638 attempts. However, Castro survived less through invincibility and more through competence on his part, and incompetence on the part of the CIA. De Gaulle, however, had no such time for things like basic security or self-preservation. While only escaping a measly 31 assassination attempts, de Gaulle wasn't content to just sit back and be told some assassin was coming after him. He instead went to meet them face to face every time. The first attempt on de Gaulle's life was after he arrived back in France in 1944 with the combined Allied invasion. Leading forces from the south, he arrived on the streets of Paris in August 1944. De Gaulle strode proudly through the streets of Place de la Concorde, shaking hands and waving, seeming to forget the whole region was still an active war zone. A Vichy militia perched on a rooftop opened fire. De Gaulle shooed his assistants away, who tried to grab him and take him to safety, shook a few more hands, then casually walked into Notre Dame Cathedral, commenting afterwards, there were no bullets flying past my ears. Over the next few years, more and more people would try to kill him, including a sailor who shot at him at point-blank range, a massive explosion to which he directed his driver to approach faster, and finally an all-out assault by an anti-De Gaulle terrorist group who shot his car with 120 rounds while pelting it with grenades and Molotov cocktails. De Gaulle's aide would recount, De Gaulle refused so much as to duck while the assault was occurring. People who tried to kill De Gaulle included the Nazis, the Vichy French, domestic terrorists, ultra-nationalists, colonialists, and communists, and possibly the goddamned CIA. The last known attempt on de Gaulle's life was on July 1st, 1966, when students tried to blow up his motorcade with a car laden with nearly a thousand kilos, two thousand pounds of dynamite. Jesus, was there anyone de Gaulle didn't piss off? Well, let's move on to number four, Kingsog. If you're wondering how someone could top de Gaulle's shield of invincibility, let me introduce you to King Zog of Albania. Zog was Prime Minister of Albania in 1922, President in 1925, and finally King in 1928. He abolished the country's short-lived democracy for a monarchy, making bitter enemies of both liberals and communists. He also broke agreements with Albania's leading landowners, making enemies of much of the upper classes, and secured cooperation with fascist Italy, making him enemies among Albania's nationalists. Internationally, he found himself leader of a country that virtually nobody wanted to exist. Modern Albania was born as a fuck you from the Bulgarians to the Serbs and as a territorial buffer to the Greeks. And while relations were good with fascist Italy, Mussolini kept doing this thing every time he visited where he kept measuring everything and muttering, soon because Italy never really pretended they saw Albania as anything but a puppet state. Which was bad news when in 1926 Zog refused to out to Italian demands, and then in 1932 was unable to pay back Italian loans, making Zog yet another enemy. So, just to sum up, King Zog was hated by the lower, the middle, and the upper classes, the owning class, the communists, the democrats, the Serbians, the Greeks, and the Italians. 
Unsurprisingly, the first assassination attempt was on the 23rd of February 1923 outside Parliament by a young man who shot him point-blank in the chest twice. Zog ignored it and went to his scheduled meeting and gave a short speech before going to the hospital. Another attempt followed shortly afterwards by Albanian exiles who shot Zog's bodyguard in the back of the head three times at the Vienna Opera House. Zog's reaction to having his bodyguard's head unexpectedly blow apart right next to him was to calmly pull out his own gun and begin shooting back as though he was the protagonist of an action movie. All in all, Zog would face 55 assassination attempts with an eerie calm of someone who clearly knows exactly when they are going to die and now is not it. As well as the 55 assassination attempts, one Albanian historian estimates there were approximately 600 blood feuds domestically against Zog during his reign. A blood feud was a traditional Albanian feud in which if one person had wronged you, you announced a blood feud and it meant the feud could only be ended once you had killed that person. Unsurprisingly, he would be deposed, but not by the army of assassins constantly attacking him, but in 1939 by his Italian allies. Following the war with the communist takeover of the country, he was not welcomed back to Albania. He died many years later of medical complications. Which brings me to number three, Mad Jack Churchill. Now, Naturally, the unkillable among us generally aren't our leaders, as if you truly want to earn a reputation as unkillable, you need to be where the danger is, something most world leaders spend an inordinate amount of time avoiding. So let me introduce you to Mad Jack Churchill. Mad Jack is mostly known as the last soldier to ever kill an enemy with a bow and arrow in war. But that is the least insane thing about him. Mad Jack believed any officer who went into battle without a sword was improperly dressed and subsequently carried a Scottish broadsword with him everywhere, as well as bagpipes, which he played while under fire. In one Allied landing, he leapt over the edge of his transport to play his bagpipes before rushing German lines with his sword drawn, tossing grenades, while being shot at. But those aren't the antics for which he earned his moniker. That came from his inventive battle strategies, which included a nighttime stealth raid in which before and during the attack, all the commandos started screaming the word commando over and over again. A tactic which was extremely effective because it confused the shit out of the Germans and stopped the commandos accidentally shooting each other in the darkness. Churchill was part of first wave landings in 1940, 1941, 1943, 1944, and always landed with his bagpipes, broadsword, and bow, often being the first to leap from the transport and start playing his pipes while under fire. His luck, however, ran out in 1944, when a shell hit his squad, killing everyone. Except Churchill, who instead propped himself up in the shell hole, found his bagpipes and started playing a traditional Scottish song, Will Ye Know Come Back Again. German soldiers approaching the shell hole were so terrified, instead throwing pinned grenades into the hole, hitting Churchill on the head and knocking him out. Naturally, as a POW, Churchill escaped almost immediately. He was captured, only to escape again six months later. Finally liberated in 1945, 
Churchill was immediately deployed to Burma to fight the Japanese. However, on their unexpected surrender, he said, quote, If it wasn't for those damn Yanks, we could have kept the war going another 10 years. After the war, Churchill would work in Australia, bring surfing to the UK, and in retirement, his favourite bit was chucking his suitcase from a moving train to startle passengers and conductors. He lived next to the tracks and would throw his case into his garden. He said it was easier than walking it home. On a personal note, while in Australia after the war, Jack Churchill actually worked with the unit my grandfather was attached to. So my grandfather almost certainly knew Jack Churchill. But let's move on to the second most unkillable person in history, Adrian Carton de Viet. Now, if you think I can't top Mad Jack, let me introduce you to the far less interestingly named Adrian Carton de Viet. Now, for some unknown reason, de Viet is not known as Adrian Fuckfingers Carton, or Adrian If You Think You're Hard Enough Try Me Carton, or anything even remotely appropriate. De Viet fought on the front lines of the Boer War, then World War I, then World War II, where he was shot in the face, skull, hip, leg, ankle, and ear, lost an eye, and had a hand blown off. He received eight severe wounds in World War I alone. During the battle that mangled his hand, he refused to be removed, and instead, according to his men, used his teeth and one good hand to lob grenades at the Germans. Later, he got impatient with the doctor who was amputating his fingers and bit them off. He was awarded a Victoria Cross for this battle. By the outbreak of World War II, de Viet was in his 60s, with one good eye and one hand. And you might think that that is the end of his exploits. Except, when on a mission to Yugoslavia, his plane was shot down and he was captured by the Italians. So, as a Dutch Brit with no Italian, one hand, a giant black eye patch, surely this was the end of his antics. Nope, he spent his entire time as a POW trying to escape. He tried pretty much every other month, and once managed to hide out for eight days before recapture. He was released in 1943, and of course, naturally retired. To a position as the UK's representative to Chiang Kai-shek, dictator of China, who was busy losing a war to the Japanese and the communists. Despite all of this, de Viet would retire after the war and die in 1963 at the age of 83. Surely, surely de Viet is the end. A man so tough he bit off his own fingers. How much more invincible can we get? Well, let me introduce you to possibly the most unkillable person of all time. The epic, the jaw-busting, myth-breaking John Capes. Man. That is a boring name. What do you do, jab himself with a knitting needle during the war? Well, in 1941, Capes was an engineer being transported to Malta by the submarine, the HMS Perseus. At the time, two in three subs that entered the Mediterranean never left, and survival rates on sunken subs were nearly 0%. In the middle of a cold December night, the Perseus hit an Italian mine, sinking rapidly to the bottom of the sea. Capes was thrown from his bunk and grasped around in pitch black, finding the mangled corpses of the crew. A depth gauge showed 270 feet, nearly 60 metres. Not a single person had ever escaped a submarine so deep. As any beginner scuba diver can tell you, if you are at 60 metres without reserved air, you are going to die. 
Capes didn't have time to consult his dive tables, because they didn't exist at the time, and because he was in a metal coffin at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Stuffing himself and two others into a twill trunk, a sort of escape hatch, he shoved a rebreather over their mouths and shot them into the dark winter waters of the Mediterranean, following shortly after. These early rebreathers could provide about 30 minutes of breathing time, otherwise known as not enough time to surface safely from 60 metres. Physically, you can surface from 60 metres easily and quickly, but at 60 metres you are at 7 atmospheres of pressure. Huge amounts of nitrogen are being absorbed into your muscles. After just a few minutes, you are all but guaranteed to get the bends on surfacing. Capes, at this point, had been at 60 metres for several minutes. He inflated his vest and shot to the surface, which is an incredibly dangerous move, but was his only option. He said the pain was so intense he almost passed out, indicating he may have gotten a compressed lung injury something that can kill you. He swam for shore and was sheltered on a Mediterranean island for 18 months before making his way back to Britain, where no one believed his story. While this may not sound as impressive as De Viet's finger-biting or Churchill's swinging sword, this ascent was unheard of. Still is. That ascent should have killed him. Capes was given a medal, but spent the rest of his life being accused of lying. He hadn't been on the crew list, and again, a sudden ascent from 60 metres just isn't survivable. Capes died in 1985, but his story was not quite done. In 1997, the HMS Perseus was found, at 270 feet with a blown trunk hatch and three missing rebreathers. Capes survived what should have been an unsurvivable situation, and for his trouble, no one ever believed him. And with that, we reach the end of our Invincible episode, only to wonder what great feats of human invincibility are yet to come. Before I go, let me leave you with this. In 1932, an Australian officer sent to exterminate emus in the nation's west said, quote, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. End quote. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you will join me next time, and goodbye.